Well, let's get started. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word and for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for this book that Luke is writing to this man, Theophilus, so that Theophilus could know with certainty uh, the, the things that he had been taught, the truth that he had been taught. Thank you that you've given us so much. Pray that you would help us this morning to be able to see you, that we would be able to come face to face with our own nature and that we would be able to to see sin where it lies that we may see it and turn from it and turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, just, just to, again, beat on a couple of nails from past weeks, why did Luke write this book? Why did Luke write his gospel? To provide evidence who Jesus said he was. In fact, what did he tell Theophilus? That's the that's the fellow that he's writing this this for, right? And again, Luke and Acts kind of being volume one, volume two. Uh, what did he tell Theophilus? Right at the beginning of the book. I'm writing this to you so that you would know with certainty. And so, and he's, he's putting things together like a prosecutor would put together a case. He's proving a case. And again, is he being exhaustive? No, he's not. In fact, today we're going to run into that to where Luke tells, he's going to present some witnesses, but he's not going to tell the entire story. And we'll get to that at the end. So again, he's being selective with what he is saying. But does that mean that he's going to be inconclusive or that somehow he's not going to accomplish his purpose? No. In fact, how did John write that? What did John say at the end of his gospel? You know, Jesus did all kinds of other things that aren't recorded in this book, but... I can't write everything down. How did he put it? You know, there's, yeah, I mean, so it's, it's silly to try to think that somehow we would have something that would be exhaustive. All right, that's not the intent. That's not Luke's intent. And so just because we find things in other Gospels that we don't find in Luke, doesn't mean that somehow Luke is missing out on something or he's not getting the whole story. Does that make sense? Gunnar, do you have something? There's a word, elegant, elegant. Just enough and, you know, and beautiful to look at, and, uh, but not overdoing it. Well, and again, Luke is not, Luke is concise, yet between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, that is over a quarter of the New Testament, just in those two books. And so uh, both of them have 28 chapters, and Luke's chapters are not short, right? Uh, Chapter 1 was 80-something verses. And so it's not like you're reading one of the, you know, Pauline epistles, where, you know, Paul tends to, those 
chapters are much more compact. So today we're going to start in chapter 2. Very familiar passage. But again, just like we talked about last week, just because this is so familiar, don't just pass over it. Because there are some really cool things in here to ponder and consider. So Luke 2. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Stop there for a second. So who's Caesar Augustus at that time? And some could argue not just the main man in Rome. He is probably the single most powerful man on the planet. Now, Caesar Augustus is kind of an interesting guy. Um, he was the he was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar, and in fact, he found out after Caesar died that he had been adopted by Caesar and named his heir. And so Caesar, at the time that he died in 44 BC, he was part of a triumvirate. It was him and Brutus and Cassius. And uh, there's a bunch of infighting between them and Brutus and Cassius end up committing suicide. And then they get replaced by Mark Antony and somebody else whose name I can't remember right now. And then Mark Antony and um, um, Octavius or Augustus, as he, as he was named after he became Caesar, they start getting into a fight, and he beats, uh, he and the other fellow beat the fleet um, for, for Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and after that, Mark Antony and Cleopatra commit suicide, and so now Octavius comes to the throne to be Caesar, and he's given the name Augustus. So Caesar Augustus comes to power 27 BC, and he rules until 14 AD. So he is Caesar all the way through the birth of Christ and Jesus' youth. Now, there's another fella that is prominent in Judea at that same time. Who's that going to be? Who's king in Judea? Herod the Great. And you kind of got to throw in the great there because Herod's family dominates Judean politics for a long time. And so, for instance, later on in the book of Acts, you're going to run into Herod Agrippa. And so he, Herod Agrippa is Herod the Great's grandson. So um, when you talk about Augustus, he's actually probably the highest regarded of the Roman Caesars. He was very gifted in administration. Uh, he was very orderly. 
And he was really responsible for a lot of the actual building of Rome uh, in its greatness. And so he, uh, he's, he doesn't have quite all the vices that many of the other Caesars had. Uh, he did not want to be deified. But that is not to say... Now, if you want to compare him to Herod the Great, Caesar Augustus is almost a saint compared to Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a wicked man. That is not to say that Caesar Augustus is a great guy. He's just the, you know, he would be the lesser of a bunch of weevils when it comes to the Roman Caesars. And so, probably the most productive of them. Um, one thing would be for sure. Caesar Augustus has no idea that a verse such as Micah 5.2 exists. So Caesar has no idea that someday a Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, is going to be born in Bethlehem. He's got no clue. And so when Caesar comes up with this idea of having a census taken, that census is going to require at least men to go to their ancestral home. And since Joseph is of the, li the lineage of David, where was David born? That's kind of a gimme. David was born in Bethlehem. There are two cities referred to as the city of David. One is Bethlehem, because that's where he was born. Where's the other one? Jerusalem. Why is, why is Jerusalem called the city of David? He was the first person to conquer it. So again, when, when, the, when the Israelites came into the promised land, they defeated the army of the Jebusites. The Jebusites were the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They defeated their army in conjunction with several other armies from surrounding cities, but they never actually took the city. And so it wasn't until the time of David, several hundred years later, that the Jebusites were finally conquered, and so that's why it was called the city of David. So why? Now, there were some censuses, some registrations, that actually required women to go to their ancestral home as well. So where would Mary go? She would go to Bethlehem as well, exactly, because Mary is also of the lineage of David. So what you'll find in, in Matthew 1, you see the, the genealogy of Joseph. In Luke 3, we're going to run into the genealogy of Mary. And that is kind of an important thing. Joseph is a descendant of Jehoiachin. Now, Jehoiachin, hopefully that's going to tickle your memory back here for two reasons. So who was Jehoiachin chronologically? What, what event would you typically associate Jehoiachin with? He was close to something. Right. 
Right. And so Jehoiachin was the king that was taken away by Babylon before, and then Zedekiah, his uncle, was appointed to be king in his place. And Zedekiah was king when they, when the, Nebu, when, uh, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. Now, Jehoiachin is important for another reason. And you'll find that in the book of Jeremiah, where it talks about Jehoiachin. There's a prophecy about Jehoiachin. Anybody remember it? I'll start it. Write this man down childless. Jehoiachin had been a wicked king. And part of that wickedness, part of the consequences of that wickedness, was that there would be no further descendants from Jehoiachin that would occupy the throne. So, for instance, when the Jews came back, his grandson, Zerubbabel, was in the first group that came back from Babylon. Yet Zerubbabel never sat on the throne. In fact, there has not been a Jewish king since the Babylonian exile. So when you look in Matthew 1, you'll find that that genealogy traces Joseph back through Jehoiachin. Mary is also related to David through his son Nathan. Nathan never sat on the throne. That didn't, he didn't come through that part of the line. He came through another son. So he didn't come through Solomon. He came through Nathan. And so, but again, Mary is a blood descendant of David. So when uh, it's talking, when, it, when it speaks of Jesus taking the throne of David, he can claim that through his mother and, th- and thereby get back to David without having to go through Jehoiachin because, again, that, got, that, that kingly line got cut off at Jehoiachin. So, uh, there were, there's talk, if you, if, you, if you do some research, you'll find that there were um, censuses in Egypt and in Syria where the women had to go as well. Now, maybe it's just because she's out to here and she doesn't want to be separated from uh, her husband for a prolonged period. But they both go. Now, when we talk about the the sacrifice that they're going to bring, the offering that they're going to bring for Jesus as a result of his birth, they're bringing the, the two turtle doves. So what does that tell us about their social standing? They're poor. Yeah, they're in poverty. You know, it's prog- probably working poor because he's, Joseph's a carpenter, so he's, he's gainfully employed, but he's not, the, he's not the big financial dog on the block. And so that idea of them being poor, how would they handle leaving Nazareth walking somewhere about 80 miles on foot to get to Bethlehem and then stay in Bethlehem for six weeks. That's quite an undertaking. 
And so again, God is going to use a pagan Gentile to issue an edict so that and, and move thousands of people so that he can have two people in the right place at the right time. Now that is something that's worth holding on to in our life, right? When we wonder sometimes why certain things are happening, number one, we might not be the focus of what that happening is. And second, God's up to something. Nothing is just happenstance. And so here, they're getting uprooted for weeks in order to go down to Bethlehem. Now, let's keep reading. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, how long they're in Bethlehem before Jesus is born isn't given. We know that they're there at least six weeks after because there's seven, that, well, he's circumcised on the eighth day, and after that there's 33 days for her purification because she had a boy, and so now we're at, we're at six weeks. So, again, matter of fact, right? You're reading this and it's, you know, there's no splendor, there's no embellishment, there's none of that. They get there, and he's born. She wraps him in cloths. Okay, so she gave birth to her firstborn. Now, firstborn here is prototokos, not monogenous. So it's her firstborn, not her onlyborn. So the idea that somehow Mary, you know, lives in perpetual virginity and you know doesn't have any other kids, Jesus had brothers, Jesus had sisters. And so it is true that Joseph kept her a virgin until after Jesus was born, but after that, they're married. And so it's expect, you know, they were having normal marital relations. And so she gives birth to her firstborn, and she wraps him in cloths, lays him in a manger. Now, is there anything unusual about wrapping him in cloths? No. Standard practice in that day, in that time. Now, laying him in a manger, is that unusual? Yeah, now that one is. Because what's a manger? It's a feeding trough. It's a place where you're going to put the food for the cattle or whatever animal that you're feeding to come and get. Now, it says here they're in the manger there because there's no room for them in the inn. Now, we probably should rewrite the children's program that's done at Christmas, you know, because we've got that whole little vignette in there about, you know, the, 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 the frustrated, frazzled innkeeper. That's made up. All right? That's made up. You will not find that anywhere biblically in the text. In fact, it's interesting because the word that's translated in here is not the word that's normally used for in. There's another word for that. So when, it, when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, 
and he takes he he picks up the guy that's been beaten within an inch of his life and he takes him to an inn that's a different word this word is two in two other places translated guest room so for instance later on in Luke when Jesus uh, sends the disciples to go and inquire about the guest room where they're going to have the Last Supper. That's this word. And so it's um, commentators are split here, naturally. I'm not sure I've ever read anything that commentators are entirely in agreement about. Um, you know, some of them will say that, no, it's an in and... Um, and then there's others that talk about, no, it's, it's a different kind of a, uh, a gathering place. There are some who would even say, Joseph, his family is from Bethlehem. So what is he very likely to have in Bethlehem? Family. He could be staying, you know, in a relative's place who have a guest room. But the guest room is full. So... Uh, there would often be, you would have the guest room, which is kind of a, a community room. And then you would have another room where you would have some people, but you would also have some animals. And so that may be where this is referring to here. And so she wraps, she feet, wraps him up, puts him in the manger, and just because they're not, re they're, they're not able to sleep in a place that they would normally be able to sleep. So, baby's born, he's in a manger, and they're there. Verse 8, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, shepherds uh, were the Rodney Dangerfields of Jewish society, they got no respect. They were considered to be lowlifes. They were considered to be untrustworthy, unreliable, which is kind of a, you look at it and you go, oh, no, no, what's that for? It was so bad that a shepherd, now how ironic is this? A shepherd was not allowed to offer testimony in court. They were not considered to be reliable. And who's God going to choose to be the witnesses for the birth of Jesus? Those guys. And so they're out here, out in their fields. And the idea here is that um, you, you had a, a number of shepherds together so that they'd be able to rotate through. So some guys are on watch and some guys are getting some sleep. Um, there are some interesting things, some interesting reading on sheep in this particular area. Sheep were not allowed to be housed in Jerusalem. And so it had to be pushed out to the, the outskirts. There was a reason why you might need to have a bunch of sheep in the near vicinity to Jerusalem. What would that be? Sacrifices. These sheep are almost certainly destined to be sacrifices in the temple. So the shepherds are keeping watch over them, and all of a sudden, this night is fixing to get 
exciting. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. So it's not like they see him coming. All of a sudden, he's right here in front of them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Now, when you think of shepherds, think of David for a moment. What were his experiences as a shepherd? So what we know that he accomplished two different things on different occasions, right? He killed a lion, and he killed a bear, and he didn't do it with a long-range rifle, right? This is hand-to-hand. -hand. You know, maybe he was using his sling, so maybe you get a little bit of distance, but not much. And so if David had that experience, you know, it's pretty likely that these guys have probably had something like that as well. So they're not girly men. They're not wimps. And so when all of a sudden this angel shows up, they have the same response, and it's not because they're cowards. What is the typical response of somebody seeing an angel? Yeah, drop dead fear, right? John ends up on his face. The Apostle John tries to worship an angel twice on different occasions. And get, don't do that. Worship God. But that is the response, typically, of men to angels. You know what? I can't believe that I've seen an angel face to face and I'm still alive. And so again, it's a, this is a, a huge, um, a shocking thing. And so they're terrified. And the angels looks to them, do not be afraid. Or the other way to put that, stop being afraid. Stop. They do, because the natural response of people is to be terrified. So, stop being afraid. I'm not here with bad news. In fact, I'm here with good news of great joy for, that will be for all the people, right? Now, how many times have we seen the Christmas thing? Because everybody in here is quoting that as it happens, right? I've got good news. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now that's loaded, isn't it? So, has, Jesus has just been identified by three titles. Savior. Would that strike a chord with these shepherds? Sure, it would. Well, actually, I don't even know if it's for that. What you see there, when you see their response to this. In fact, let's just read a little further and then compare it to some other angelic visits we've already seen in this book, right? For you today has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Lord, this will be a sign, and actually that A is not an A. It's the. This shall be the sign. It's a definite article. So this is the sign. 
for you to look for. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem. And and there's urgency in this. Come on, let's go. Let's get there. Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry. Stop right there. So what? Angels have appeared to a couple of other people in this book. So an angel appeared to Zechariah. Gabriel appears to Zechariah. And he says, you know what? Your prayer has been heard. And Elizabeth, your wife, is going, the one who's been barren, is going to have a son. And what did Zechariah do? Yeah, how do I know this is going to happen? What's going to be the sign? Do the shepherds ask for a sign? No. And in fact, what's their response to the message that they've been given? Who's the message from? They attribute it. We've received a message from the Lord. It's from God. It came through this angel, but the message is from God. And what do they do? Immediately. Hey, we need... That's right. They believe it. And you know what? We need to leave right now. And we need to go find this kid. We need to go find this baby. And so again, for guys who are unreliable to be witnesses in a court of law, their faith is a whole lot more evident than many of the other people that we're going to read of in this gospel. Many of them. And so, boom, we need to go find this child. So, it's not stated, but what, what is it that they're looking for in particular? What's the one thing that they're going to be looking for to know that they have found the child that they're looking for? He's going to be in a manger. So, what are they doing? Hi. Got a baby lying in a manger? There may have been other babies in Bethlehem. There's only one laying in a manger. And so they're in search of. And so they go and they find him. You know, that is another sign of the elegance of the scripture because how else did God separate Oh, yeah, I mean. You look at this whole thing. This is God in human flesh. And he's in a food trough. Jesus doesn't have a silver spoon in his mouth. He's not going to have anything handed to him. And so, and who's he born to? A couple of nobodies. 
And who's God's who's God bringing in his witnesses? A bunch of shepherds. And so, you know, if if you if if Hollywood was going to write this story, I mean, there'd be, you know, celestial banners and 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 all kinds of stuff and and Joseph and Mary would be, you know, the hotshot celebrities and 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 you know, they the 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 the, the, the big social people would be the witnesses coming in, right? Not this way. Not this way. And so, the shepherds show up. They find him. Verse 16, So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it, now this is interesting now, isn't it, That the way that that's phrased. All who heard it. What does that imply? They're telling people, who else is there? There's other people there besides Joseph and Mary. There's all kinds of other folks there, apparently. So you've got all these, you know, unnamed, unidentified folks. And they hear it, and they all have the same response. All who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. So this idea of wondering, they're amazed. That's really the way that the word is translated most often, is amazed. They're hearing this, and they're going, wow. This is not a story that you hear every day. And yet, they're amazed, astonished. But Mary takes this very differently. This is a phrase that we've heard before, right? Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And so she's hearing all these different things. So she's, she's had the visit from Gabriel, the angel. She's had... Uh, she's gone to see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is saying, realizing, hi, the baby that you're carrying is the Messiah. You're the mother of our Lord, mother of my Lord. And now she's hearing the shepherds come in with this, you know, hi, we had an angel come and visit us. In fact, we didn't even just get one angel. We got a whole slew of them. And so she's hearing all, and they told us where to find him, and this is how they described him. This is what they had to say about him. And so they're hearing all of these things. She's hearing all of these things, and she's trying to put this stuff together in her head. And again, remember, how old is she? Very likely she's a teenager, and an early one at that. She's probably 13, maybe 14 years old. And so, you know, here she is, and there's all of these things coming in here. Um, She's already experienced. uh, Okay, ladies, I've obviously never born a child. I've seen all kinds of pregnant women. And normally, when you get to seven, eight, nine months... You know, is anybody surprised when somebody's seven, eight, nine months pregnant that they're pregnant? 
Usually not, right? You know, they're out to here. They're uncomfortable. You know, you look all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they're just oh, ripping across their belly and, you know, and, and, and then, you know, the heartburn and all that other good stuff that I am so grateful I don't have to deal with, um, at least not for being pregnant. And so you've got all of that going on. And she, of course, has been bearing all of this because they're married, but they're married because they're engaged. Remember, we talked about that last week, that a Jewish engagement was much more you were legally married, you just hadn't consummated the marriage yet. And in fact, if you wanted to break that betrothal, you got a divorce. And so you've had all of this stuff going on with her, and so she's just pondering on these things and trying to to work through them. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. That's worth parking on for just a minute. The things that the angels have told to Elizabeth, to Zechariah, to Joseph, to Mary, and to the shepherds, have they actually come to pass? Yeah. Was it foretold that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem? Yes. Was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Yes. Was it foretold that Jesus would be born of a virgin? Yes. Was Jesus born of a virgin? Yes. As improbable as that might be, yet it occurred just as it was said. Now, so you, you, some of you are kind of giving me a look like, okay, that horse is dead. Why are you beating it? For this reason. Have all the prophecies in the Bible that have been given been fulfilled yet? They have not. How would you expect them to be fulfilled? Just as they were given, exactly. There's a tendency in a good in a in a large portion of Christendom to spiritualize the prophecies that have not yet come to be. And the question is, why? The others that have been given have occurred just as they were said. Why is there any reason to think that somehow, just because now we're on this side of the cross, that all of a sudden those things will be, that those are spiritual. Those aren't actual. Those are spiritual promises. So, what does it mean to spiritualize? So, for instance, there are prophecies that talk about land being restored to Israel and being divided in a different way than has ever been done before. You'll find that in the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, where the land is split up differently. There's a temple that's larger than any temple, any Jewish temple that's ever been built, and it's referring to the millennial kingdom. There is a, a pretty healthy part of Christendom that says, that's not actual. That shouldn't be taken literally. That has some type of a spiritual meaning as opposed to a literal meaning. And so that, that's not a physical kingdom. That's a spiritual kingdom. 
That's what it, and so again, that's what it means to, to take something and to spiritualize it rather than to simply take it for what it says. And so, Gunnar. Yes. They do. I've seen the golden lampstand with my own eyes in person from me to Keisha. I've seen the priestly garments. I've seen the high priest's ephod. So, yeah, they're ready. I'm told that they have actually have heavy equipment pre-stationed so that if anything were to suddenly happen to the Dome of the Rock, uh, the word is they could have a, an altar built in four hours. Well, there's something to that. Uh, it was Elijah, I think. I think it was Elijah, not Elisha, and his servant, where Elijah, you know, hey, there's more with us than there are with them. And the, and the servants looking around and going, uh, I'm not seeing that. And so, Lord, open his eyes. And they're surrounded by angels. And so, uh, you know what? God knows how to keep his own. And God knows how to accomplish his purpose. And there is no one, and I mean no body, who is able to thwart him and to thwart his, to thwart his, his, uh, his will. It just doesn't happen. And so now you've got all these, now you've got these shepherds, and you can't get these guys to shut up. They've just seen something utterly incredible. And probably the only saving grace for people in Bethlehem is that these guys live out in the hills. And there's not a lot of people out there in the hills. But anybody there coming across, hey, listen, you got to hear what happened tonight. Well, you know, it's interesting because, again, when they're telling that story to the people that are there with Mary and Joseph, people are going, wow, wow. And by the way, who isn't there? Just again, I hate to pick on the Christmas program. The wise men aren't there yet. Yeah, exactly. And so there's all kinds, of, I know. I'm going to be in so much trouble with the people. 
<laughs> my daughter-in-law. My daughter-in-law does the music for them now. So <clears throat> we don't. We ju- we all we know is that there were magi from the east, and you know, obviously, when they're given their description to Herod as to the timing uh, when he slaughters the the little boys in Bethlehem, it's you know everybody two and under, and so uh, Herod was casting a wide net, but. There's, there's a lot of other events that are coming in here. Luke doesn't talk about that, but we'll get into that in a minute. So, here come the shepherds. Now, this next section is dominated by references to the law and fulfilling the law. Now, one of the things we've seen that Zechariah was a righteous man. We're going to see that Simeon is a righteous man. He's a just man. He's a devout man. What is one of the evidences of being devout? If someone was going to be described as devout, what would you expect to see? Doing what pleases... Exactly. Obeying the law, doing what pleases God. In their time. So in our time, no, are we going to be necessarily, you know, concerned about food laws and all of those things? No. But there's a whole bunch of stuff in the New Testament that are commands. People who are devout, they pay mind to that. This pleases God. I want to make God happy. So out of devotion to God, I am going to do these things and I am going to avoid those things that God wants me to avoid. And so now we have, there's a bunch of things in the law that deal with childbirth specifically. And Joseph and Mary are knowledgeable of those things. And so what are they going to do? They're going to make sure that they do the things that they're supposed to do. And so we see here, verse 21 and when eight days had passed, before his circumcision, stop right there. Jesus is a boy. So, what's going to have to happen to Jesus? He's going to get circumcised. When? On the eighth day. Why? Because that's what the law says. You bring him on the eighth day. By the way, does Jesus have anything to do with that? Is he, you know, a hey, mom and dad... It's the eighth day. I'm supposed to get circumcised today. Does he tell them that? Of course not. So, for instance, when Paul is listing out his accomplishment or his resume as a Jew, when he talks about, oh, yeah, I'm of the tribe of Israel. I'm, a, I'm of the nation of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two that didn't fall away with the northern kingdom, although Benjamin had their own problems. And I was circumcised on the eighth day. Dude, you had nothing to do with that. All right? You can't even see goo goo gaga at that point, right? So you got nothing to do with that. But Jesus, Joseph and Mary, take him to be circumcised. And before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. Why? Because that was the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So they're obedient when it comes to naming him. They had been told, you name him Jesus. What's significant about the name? Jesus in Hebrew would be 
Joshua. And what does Joshua mean? Yeah, Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. So Savior is built into his name. So they, they obey the, the command of the angel, which again is the command of who? God. The, the angel is the messenger. That's all the angel is. And so they obey the word of God that they received via the angel, and they're, they're obeying the law of God. So when you go into a Leviticus 12, that's where you're going to find, you have them, if it's a, child, a male child, you have him circumcised on the eighth day. But then it keeps going. Verse 22, And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, under the law, in Leviticus 12, you'll find that if it was a male child, the woman was considered ceremonially unclean for 33 days, in addition to uh, the eight uh, for the circumcision. So that's a period of basically 40 days. So for six weeks, she's unclean. And at the end of that time, she is to bring an offering. Now that offering is for her purification, there was also an offering that was going to be brought to redeem Jesus because he was the firstborn and he's a male. So he's opening the womb. There was a special offering that was to be given for that. So they're bringing that as well. So again, it's in obedience to what has been commanded. You remember um, Hannah when she had Samuel. She comes and she brings an offering to the Lord, right? And she actually offers Samuel up for service to God. He was not from the tribe of Levi. And yet he ended up as a priest because he was given in service to God. And so they're being very careful. Now, are they justified by their works? No. What it is, is the works that they're doing, that's, in, uh, that's the natural result of their commitment to God. And so that's the evidence, that's the fruit of their, their obedience is the fruit of their faith. And now, we get two more nobodies. So here comes this, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This is the only place Simeon's talked about in the Bible. This is it. So if you want to know anything about his life story, you're not going to get it here. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. So what is it meant here by the consolation of Israel? When you go in the book of Acts and you see Peter talking about um, 
this is, hang on a second, let me just turn there so I'm not messing it up. Times of refreshing. And Oh, it's because I'm in the wrong chapter. That's not going to work. Um, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And so, when you look through here, yeah, it's in Peter's sermon. He's talking, he talks about times of refreshing. Maybe I'm in the wrong sermon. I am in the wrong sermon. Go to chapter 3. Uh, verse 19, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. When you see times of refreshing and the restoration of all things, those are messianic terms. That's talking about the, the messianic kingdom. The same thing that's referred to back here when it talks about Simeon is looking for the consolation of Israel. Now that is taken from Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, right? That's the, why is Isaiah saying to them, comfort my people? What's coming? There in chapter 40, you start to be introduced to the coming Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, then all of these, then he's going to accomplish all of these different things. And so the consolation of Israel, that he's, Simeon is looking for God rescuing his people. The promises that have been made in the Old Testament, he's looking for them to be fulfilled. Why? He expects God to do what he said he was going to do. Uh, Dave is preaching through the book of Acts. A couple of weeks ago, he's in the first part of Acts chapter 1, the disciples come to him saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What, what are they talking about? They're talking about an earthly kingdom, the messianic kingdom. And Jesus doesn't jump on them and say, I can't believe this. I just spent 40 days with you guys, giving you a, you know, a whole seminary education in a month and a half, and you guys can't get anything right. He doesn't say that. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. And so again, we should be expecting that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. When he said the, the, the Babylonian exile was going to last 70 years. How long did it last? 70 years. In fact, how long did Daniel think it was going to last? 70 years. The prayer in Daniel chapter 9 
is in direct response to that. Daniel was good at math. And he can go, okay, here's the start of the exile, and here's where it, 70 years. And so he starts praying, Lord, are you going to fulfill your word? In fact, because I expect that you're going to fulfill your word, I'm going to start confessing my sins and the sins of my people. And so again, uh, it's that idea of taking God at his word. So Simeon's looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Luke is big on the Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit more often referred to in Luke and the book of Acts than you see anywhere else. And so the Holy Spirit is upon Simeon. And Simeon had gotten a message from God. Now, Simeon could get a message from God. They didn't have a completed Bible. So God still spoke directly to people. That's how we got a New Testament, right? So God has a message for Simeon. Simeon, you're not going to die until you see him. Now can you imagine what Simeon is doing pretty much every day? He's looking. I know. I've been told. And so, I'm looking. You've heard the, the saying, you know, if you're going to pray for rain, you'd better carry an umbrella. That, you, that you, you can tell by who's got faith, who's got the umbrella. Simeon's looking. He's watching. That's why I think, realistically, it's not actually stated in the text that he's older, but it's anticipated because if you're a young guy, if you're in your 20s, you know, I don't think you would be praying, okay, God, you can take me now. Because your word, is, your word has come to pass. So the spirits revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Lord's Christ is who? Messiah. So again, that person that they are looking for. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and so the Spirit's given him the nudge. Okay, Simeon, get to the temple. And Simeon comes in, and when the parents brought the, in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, so this is the day that they're coming in to do their offering for, her, for the purification and for redeeming him under the law. Verse 28, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, that's Kurios, Master, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You know, there's a lot of people in life who are witnesses to events and have no clue as to what those events really mean. Simeon gets to know. And so here he sees this baby. Gets to hold him. <laughs> Ever met somebody really significant? Maybe you get to see him from a distance. Simeon's holding Christ, Messiah, in his arms.
my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So again, it's not just for Israel. This is the salvation that's going to extend to the Gentiles as well. And his father and... I'm sorry? It's interesting he said Gentiles before he said people of Israel. Well, and, and Gentiles, that was one of the things that the Jews were supposed to be. They were supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. And he's quoting that. So again, Simeon knows his Old Testament. He knows his Bible. All right? Because again, what was the Bible at this point in time? It's the Old Testament. That's their Bible. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother. Interesting that he talks to Mary. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Why doesn't he talk to Joseph? Joseph won't be there. Joseph won't be there. In fact, when we finish up chapter 2, Outside of the genealogy in the very first part of chapter 3, there will be no more mention of Joseph in the book of Luke. Once Jesus is uh, 12, there's no mention of Joseph anywhere in the Bible, in the New Testament. And so Joseph's not going to be there. Mary will. And so... This idea of for the fall and rise, what, how is Jesus referred to in the, uh, in fact, Paul refers to him as the rock of stumbling, the rock of offense, right? There are many who are going to hit him and they're going to fall, they're going to stumble over him because they're not going to, they're not going to recognize him for who he is. They're not going to believe what he says. They're not going to, uh, to do what he says. And so you have those that are going to fall, and you have those that are going to rise. You have those who are going to come to faith, and they are going to um, be blessed in that. And this idea in verse 35, a sword will pierce even your own soul. This isn't the word that's usually used for sword. This is the broad sword. This is the big one that you use two hands with. It's usually carried over your shoulder. That's the sword that's going to pierce her heart. It's not going to be subtle. It's not going to be gentle. There's going to be anguish for her that Is going to, and so here you you know that sword is going to pierce your own soul. Now, by the way, that can probably deal with a couple of different aspects here. Now, can't it? 
What's the obvious one? Yeah, she's going to see Jesus crucified. She's going to watch him be tortured. I'm not a mom, but I can't even fathom that. But what's the other way? Three years of scorn and ridicule and opposition and doubt, disbelief by all of even his brothers. Yeah, so you're going to have all of the family rejection of him. There's one more, though, too. And one that I don't think people think about when they think about Mary. Stigma, the uncertainty of his conception. <laughs> well, there's the stigma. She needed to be saved too. She needed to be saved too. Absolutely. Because at the beginning, is she fully on board with him? Not so much. Not so much. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, yeah, woman, it's not my time yet. So she, and you know, she comes with his brothers and they're coming to basically rescue him because they think that he's committing basically uh, social suicide with his message. Remember, and, and, and people come in, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside. My mom and my brothers are those who believe. And so there's... This idea here of she's pondering these things, but she's not necessarily getting all of this really put together. Is that saying something bad about her? No. The disciples didn't get it. Jesus would tell them straight out, right? Look, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the, to the priests and the scribes. They're going to kill me. I'm going to rise three days later. And it's like, They've got hair like mine. All the things hitting them right on the way over. And so um, they're just not getting it. And so here you have for her, Mary, this is coming. To the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What, what, uh, what verse does that bring to mind? Hebrews 4.12, exactly, right? What is it that reveals the thoughts and intentions of the heart? It's the Word of God. And so, even Simeon is getting that before the cross. Now, why is he getting it? Because God is telling him, right? He's not figuring that out on his own. And then, we'll just cover this really quick. There's a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. Now, what would be significant about the tribe of Asher? Where was Asher? What was Asher part of? Was it part of the southern kingdom? They were of the northern kingdom. What was significant about the northern kingdom? They've been exiled since 722 BC. They've been in exile for 700 plus years. And Asher 
was one of those tribes. So when you hear people talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel, they ain't lost. God knows where they are. And so she's of the tribe of Asher. She's advanced in years, literally advanced in days, and it lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. Now there is dispute into that language there because that's not the literal translation. So there can be, there's, there's two possible translations here. One is that she's 84 and the other is that she'd been a widow for 84 years. So she'd been married for seven and then you got to have, you know, she's not getting married when she's three. So you've got some other years. So it's either she's 84 or she's at least 105. Now, in that day and time, 80 is pretty old. So it doesn't have to be 105 uh, for her to be old. Um, I think 84 is probably the more likely. Uh, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. So uh, if you were looking at her... If you think of uh, in the pastorals where it talks about supporting widows indeed, would she be a widow indeed? Yes, she would. Because her life is basically devoted to God and his service. She's fasting. She's praying. She's in the temple day and night. She's a fixture there. She happens to be there when Simeon picks up Jesus. And she's another one that at, the, at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. The redemption of Jerusalem, again, is going to be what kind of language? Messianic. So basically, anybody who's looking for Messiah, she's got a story to tell them. Verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So Luke has got them going straight from Bethlehem to Nazareth. What's Luke not including? Yeah, Egypt. The Magi, yeah, all of that stuff there, Luke doesn't talk about. Now, just to wrap up here, this idea of the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This word increasing is literally, it's to, to be filled. And so when, when you talk about in Ephesians, you know, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That's this word. And so um, here you have Jesus is growing up. He starts as a baby. He's a toddler. And he's growing. And as he's growing physically, he's growing in strength. But he's also growing in wisdom. And God's grace is on him. Now, we need to have this for next week. Because the evidence of God's grace being on him and on him being filled with wisdom is the basis for when he's in the temple when he's 12. 
So, questions? Sorry, we're having to cover a lot of ground because these chapters are long. And I don't get to have two years to do a book. All right, let's pray. Father, what that must have been for Simeon. To hold the hope of a nation, hope of the world, in his arms. And to actually be able to recognize Jesus for who he was. And Father, we're grateful that you have revealed so much to us. We have everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. And you don't just give it to us in writing. You give us your spirit so that we can understand what it is that, that we read. And so, Lord, we are grateful. And we're reminded this morning we're going to sing a song that talks about you receive the, you welcome the vilest, the poorest. And that's us. We don't have anything to offer you. We have value because you've placed it on us. And we don't have anything that we haven't received from you. You're the giver of every perfect gift and every good gift. And so, Father, we are grateful. And I pray that today that we would live as these that we have read about today lived. That we would be mindful of what you would have us to do and what you would have us to not do. That our obedience would reflect and be an example of our love and our adoration and our devotion to you and our worship for you. In Christ's name, amen.